You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Without further ado, I get to introduce our speaker today. We are extremely lucky to have Tom Byers here to give a talk. Um, how many of you know Tom Byers or have seen Tom Byers in class? Okay, this is a good sign you've come back, okay? You are lucky. Um, Tom, you have his official bio in front of you, and I certainly am not going to read it to you. I just want to tell you that I have had the privilege of working with Tom for the last six and a half years. And to just put that in context, I used to change careers every two years, whether I needed to or not. And because of Tom, I have not left STVP. Uh, Tom is the academic director, and um, I, every single day, get the opportunity to work with him. The one thing I want to just tell you on a personal note about Tom is that it's important for you to understand that 11 years ago, Tom left a very successful career in um, industry because he became passionate about teaching and passionate about basically building the next generation of entrepreneurs. And you all get to benefit from all of the work that he's put in. Every single day, Tom comes in with the sole mission of figuring out the most innovative, creative, and appropriate ways to teach students here at Stanford. And uh, this is a talk that he's put together and is given all over the planet on the 10 enduring lessons of entrepreneurship. So without further ado, here's Tom. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, here we go. Checking. One, two, three. So uh, promise me, you know, I've sat in enough of these in the back to realize that sometimes the levels of, of the volume were, were not right. So, you know, do a timeout sign or something like that if the volumes aren't correct. Are they okay? Can you hear me? Okay? Yeah? Good? All right. But if something changes, just do this and, and we'll stop right there because I, I want everybody to to be uh, tortured by what I'm about to say <laughs> over the next half an hour or so. So it feels really odd being here as the speaker rather than one of the introducers because uh, I was away in the autumn. As a matter of fact, you see this here in the next slide. I actually spent the autumn at the London Business School. So Tina talked about our association together uh, with the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. And... Um, but I, I had a, the pleasure of, of working in, in England, uh, teaching not only at London Business School, but also a few engineering schools, University College London, Oxford. I got to go up to the University of Edinburgh um, and actually do a version of this talk. Um, but, um, you know, it's just, it's, normally I'm up here as part of my duties of Stanford Technology Ventures Program to help introduce the speakers, which you will see me up here doing that exact thing uh, next uh, Wednesday at 4.30. So it feels... You know, it's like uh, Bizarro Day or something to be the, the, the person that uh, has to entertain you uh, for over the next uh, hour or so. So, you know, I'll try to follow the format that most people do, uh, which is, you know, talk for about a half an hour. as famous last words because I have a lot of content to share. And I've been thinking about this and working on this ever since last week when we, we had, if you notice some of the posters, it was a bait-and-switch situation. We did have another uh, speaker um, uh, you know, uh, online to come and, and be with us today, but they couldn't make it the last second, and somehow Tina gave me a call and drafted me into this. But it, I, it's a real honor and a real privilege to be able to talk about some of these things with you. Um, so, um, the, 
I guess where I'm gonna, what I'm going to be doing is, is talk, in, in talking about these 10 enduring success factors, I'm going to be talking about high-tech entrepreneurship, which is sort of the theme of this uh, seminar series and has been for years. Um, how many of you have been to one of these before? I know it's the first one of the quarter. Okay. How many of you have never been to one of these? Whoa! Oh, okay. I, I hope that I do a good enough job where you'll come back because they're every Wednesday afternoon, all year long, and they're just, they're just spectacular. I have a lot to live up for. I'm really anxious right now and have been all weekend. Um, just ruined my Martin Luther King Day weekend uh, because I've been anxious because of the quality of who you're going to meet in here, and I'm going to refer to a few of them as I'm talking about this. It's just spe spectacular. So anyhow, um, the, the enduring part of this is that, you know, I've been at, she mentioned I've been at Stanford for 10 years or 11 years or so, and um, between, it was really wild. To get here in 1995 and to be here to 2000, that was what's commonly referred to as the bubble years. You know, this amazing economic expansion um, in the technology field. And to, sort of, to be an observer, which is essentially what we do as educators, and try to think about, well, what's the essence of entrepreneurship, though, in that kind of condition? Well, we got to see that, and then we got to see just, you know, full body slam of the economy uh, in this region for sure and almost everywhere that anything to do with technology between the year 2000 and recently. And now we're just sort of getting back to steady state. So what's, what's been enduring to that as, you know, as success factors uh, for, for the people that you get to meet and hear or the other kinds of entrepreneurs? So I put it in, a, uh, in the curriculum that I've been teaching here over the last 10 years and, and having influence uh, you know, Tina and I have influence on other people who teach entrepreneurship. I hope all of you are taking full advantage of the, of the courses that are offered in the engineering school as well as the business school and the med school and so forth. And we all work very hard on that curriculum. But um, I also decided to do a textbook. And this, uh, this red thing here in the middle um, is from McGraw-Hill, and I had a wonderful time writing it. it, it we shipped it, the first edition, uh, just a little less than two years ago. So I'm, right now I'm in the midst of writing the second edition, uh, to hopefully get it done by, uh, get her done, as they say, uh, by Christmas time. And one of the reasons I went to London uh, and spent the fall there was to make the textbook more international and sort of think through, okay, not just enduring success factors of high-tech entrepreneurship, but what about, you know, uh, what's, what's, given that the world is flat, as, as the common term now is, and the death of distance and so forth, how to make that book not just about Silicon Valley technology ventures, but really about... Uh, those around the world. We had a chance to go run a conference, for example, in Beijing last summer and got to spend July there and getting to meet a, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs there as well. All right, so um, it's a top 10 list. And, and, you know, with all due apologies to David Letterman, you know, I'm not going to be that funny. Uh, and, uh, but I did uh, like the way that Guy Kawasaki, who many of you maybe have seen speak before, he does that. And he, it's, it's fantastic the way he says, you know, uh, he does top tens because he says, you know, if you're bored, you've heard this before, if you're bored, if I'm at like a number three, you know there are only seven more to go. So you can always just subtract wherever we are from ten and you know how far we have to go. Um, so um, I'm going to use some examples. It's really in, in a set of questions that it just, what I've tried to encapsulate is take the whole field of high-tech entrepreneurship and boil it down. I'm, I'm not that sophisticated a person. I've had to like try to take it down and really just try to simplify it into ten points, and I'll put them as, uh, uh, as, as questions and then talk about each one, uh, and maybe, you know, maybe it'll uh, resonate with you, or maybe uh, we can you know, have some dialogue about this uh, after I'm done during Q&A or any time in my office hours, which are 
You're all invited to my office hours. We can all try to fit in my office just three floors up. You need Monday afternoon and talk about this. All right, so the first one is, what's the difference between an idea and an opportunity? So this is kind of the mega question. This is just sort of like, well, what is high-tech entrepreneurship after all? So first of all, let's talk about high-tech and just great ideas. That is a picture I ripped off from our dean, of, the dean of the School of Engineering's uh, recent um, presentations, because it's, it is where Stanford is investing uh, in terms of basic research. I hope many of you in this room, because it looks like very much a student population, and that's awesome, and many of you watching, uh, you know, are into one of these things, because the university certainly is. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of dollars being invested here at Stanford in basic research in one of these four areas, as well as at my alma mater at Berkeley and MIT and Georgia Tech, uh, what I saw at Oxford and, and you know, Cambridge and so forth, what I saw at Tsinghua in Beijing, this is very hot areas. I would love to be young again. I mean, if you think that the, you know, most of my examples I'm going to use are from you know, things I did when I was in industry and so forth that I saw firsthand, but, oh, my God, I'd love to be uh, you know, ready to, to have another 50-year career because stuff, whether it's in IT or nano or bio or even my favorite one here, uh, the environment and energy, uh, it's just super exciting. The technology is involved. And as Tina was reminding me this morning in a meeting, you know, it's really the intersections of these. Okay, so great ideas are coming. I mean, they're all over the place. So, but what's, it, what's this thing called opportunity? So I would like you to oblige me and let you show you something from a project that we do along with a fellow named Forrest and some other people upstairs called the Educator's Corner. And it's a video. And it's a video from a very famous venture capitalist who's spoken in here before. Uh, named Vinod Kosla. He's also an entrepreneur. He created Sun. He helped create Juniper Networks. Let's hear what he has to say about opportunity. And I hope this works. Very short clip, and just a, as, a, as, a, as my own kind of timeout for a second, we have hundreds of those clips uh, loaded on something called edcorner.stanford.edu by every, every, uh, uh, so many different wonderful entrepreneurs. As a matter of fact, the speakers in here, that's the source of those video clips, and we put them into sound bites and we, we give them away for free. So uh, please enjoy uh, more of those if you like that one and all kinds of other people. But anyway, an, an end of the advertisement. But did you hear what he had to say? He said, you know, every big problem, I mean, you know, there's no opportunity list, there's a big problem. So wait a minute, we're, so there's ideas and then there's problems. So how are we going to put some uh, sanity around this? And I, I really do enjoy thinking, since entrepreneurship is such a big topic, and, so, and even when you narrow it down and say, no, 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 we're just going to talk about high-tech entrepreneurship, you know, high-potential entrepreneurship, what makes the Googles happen? What makes the Genentechs happen? So that's still a gigantic topic that just transcends all these departments at the East University. It's written about every day in uh, you know, all the major newspapers, uh, almost like it's a sport. You know, like, uh, it's, it gets to be like uh, you know, reading the business section. is almost like reading the sports section, for example, or entertainment section. So you know, it's, written, written about, it's, it's studied by scholars all over the world. So what about it? So i, I got to put... I just have to put some sort of frameworks around it, and, and that's how we build it as a, as a curriculum and, as a, and teach it as a process so it can be taught. Entrepreneurs aren't born, they're made. Entrepreneurs, can, can they be taught? Hell yeah. 
because they can learn. It's that simple. And so that's our job as educators, and we know the most of them around the world, and, we're, and so it's such a noble profession um, to be part of, but it's difficult to come up with, okay, how are you going to explain this stuff? So this is a friend at Babson, which is a school in, in the uh, in suburbs of Boston, and he says, look, let's look at entrepreneurship this way. So we're still in this first question, this mega question of difference between idea and opportunity. He says, well, okay, we got this notion of opportunity, but let's break it down a little bit more. Op entrepreneurs evaluate and recognize opportunities with this collision up top here between, okay, ideas and products colliding with problems. Well, what, you know, Vino called market opportunities. All right? Then they don't really think too much at the time as they're evaluating and recognizing what they're going to do in terms of money and talent. So they, that's this pursuit of opportunity where they know it's, okay, we haven't thought about much of this uh, yet, but now we're going to have to g gather some resources which is as old as any capitalism discussion or anything. I mean, it's old, that's decades, if not centuries old. In other words, you know, capital and, and talent. So if we break it down this way, the rest of my uh, chat with you is going to be three of them having to do with sort of the top part, three of them having to do with finance, and three having to do with team. And this is just a sort of way to keep it in your mind as we step through it. And I'm assuming these slides are all, we'll, we'll post them up on the uh, ETL site. And for those of you, since you're also brand new, this is archived, and you can, uh, if you liked it so much this time, you can go back and watch it again. <laughs> um, and I can't get this crowd to laugh. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm going to keep trying, though. Not it. Um, so uh, anyway, so the, uh, we'll post the slides up there. Um, let's do three, having to do with the collision of products and markets, All right. So the first one is, why do ventures require dynamic leaders? But, I, you know, I said I'm talking about products and, and markets. Well, of course, every one of these has to do with humans because that's what's doing, that, that's what's, you know, creating these companies. So um, the top part really has to do, this, this, no, this notion of the collision of ideas and problems and, you know, what comes out of that really has to do with setting a vision. And you hear people in here talking about that, saying, what is the purpose and the mission of our company, of our venture, of our enterprise? And then they say, you know, what is our strategy in order to achieve that? So, you know, what, what I love, and I hope you watch that, is, is we have uh, uh, speakers here the rest of the year just talk about that or ask them, say, hey, what's your vision, you know, and how do you set a strategy before you start executing? You know, it's the old um, ready, fire, no, I'm sorry. Ready, aim, fire. Excuse me. Ready, aim, fire, meaning ready being vision, uh, aim being strategy, and fire being execution. So you, how many times have you seen people go like ready, whatever I said the first time, <laughs> fire, aim, aim after they fired? It's that type of thing. So great leaders have this wonderful ability of keeping that in mind. Vision drives strategy, which drives execution. And here's another thing that's really cool in observing entrepreneurs and, uh, and management teams, especially the CEOs and founders. They have to evolve as people. I mean, just like you're going through major transformations being students or whatever uh, stage of life you're in in terms of professional development, they have to as well. And it's really interesting to watch and track that. Um, I get to teach... Um, I'm a lucky person. I get to teach a class, the one I'm teaching right now, with a fellow named Randy Komisar, who has been in this seminar series many, many times over the years, thank goodness. And Randy's a venture capitalist now. He's done many, many things over his life and, as well. But he wrote this book called Monk and Riddle. I highly recommend it. 
it's a, it's a lot more fun to read than this red book that I wrote. Um, and uh, I got to laugh there. Um, and so um, Randy has this wonderful metaphor. How many of you own pets? Had a pet or you have just in love with a pet? Good. Thank you. Because I do too. And um, <clears throat> I love my cat. And um, Randy loves his dogs. And so he has this way of talking about CEOs as dogs. I know that sounds funny, but, but lovingly as dogs. And he says there's three kinds of CEOs. And he says like three kinds of dogs. Retriever, bloodhound, and husky. And they have to evolve. In other words, the retriever has to evolve to be a bloodhound, which has to evolve to be a husky, if they're going to continue to be CEO. So let's talk about that in a minute. So a retriever is like the initial founder of the company, the initial CEO. They have to go out and you know, trade stock, uh, which is all they got, equity, uh, for ideas, for some, a little bit of money, a little bit of talent to get the thing going. And then, and, and craft a vision, like we talked about. Then the uh, bloodhound has to, you know, is the next kind of CEO a company needs to go sniff out a trail. And that's sort of like setting a strategy. And then lastly, as a company grows, um, the, the, uh, the husky needs to take over. And you, so what you're going to see in here, because it's, you're just going to get people at a point in time, and what we've seen in here for the last eight years that we've been doing this and storing them up on the website and chopping them up in these video clips is people who were really good at being a bloodhound, I mean, you know, like a, a retriever, a bloodhound, but maybe not so good at being a husky. Or they realized that and they turned it over. So let's talk about Larry Page, for example. What was he? Well, he was a retriever to begin with as he and Sergey got Google started down on University Avenue. Pretty good bloodhound in setting out the strategy determined about the whole you know, notion of uh, AdWords and so forth. But when the company became 200 people, was about five years ago, he turned it over to Eric Schmidt, a very compatible CEO who was the husky who's brought that company along you know, to where it is today and it's, you know, it's all its glory. And I could go in that example after example of some people who can make that full transition. I mean, Bill Gates, you could argue, is sort of the previous generations of Google, you know, sort of made that transition all through the 80s and 90s. Um, and it, so it's fascinating. All right, so let's, uh, let's, take, let's keep this rolling in the interest of time. So the next one I chose for this section of, the, of you know, this top half of the, of the framework is context. And, you know, by the way, choosing three for each one was really, really hard. And, and it's really it's, it's fun because I keep thinking about it and meeting people and, and getting feedback. And I hope you'll give me feedback on them as well. Um, yeah, and I'll give you a way to reach me here at the end. This one's context. And it says, you know, how does context play a role in high tech? And there's those rapids there. Context is all the things outside of the control of the uh, management team, of the entrepreneurs. What they can't control, and man, you know, that's kind of freaky because a lot of entrepreneurs are, are, have, have been, you know, they're type A personalities or something like that, and they, they love being in control, but the really good ones realize that, man, there's a lot going on that I can't control, and so how do I navigate through that? How do I um, deal with regulation, you know, government regulation? How do I deal with economies, like I talked earlier, going really, really well when it was super easy to raise money as an entrepreneur in the late 90s, and then it got very, very difficult. Uh, how do I turn that into, as, as I hear over and over in our office upstairs, is how do you turn a problem into an opportunity like that if you face something like a difficult recession? Or think of the geopolitical concerns that have been going on since 9-11 over the last four or five years and, and what's, that, what's that done 
for what it means to be an entrepreneur. I am in awe of, of these biotech companies and medical te technology companies who do this. Because not only do they face the same stuff in terms of economies ebbing and flowing, uh, or of geopolitical uh, tensions and so forth, but they also face an onslaught of regulations. And I know any of, I mean, most of you who have any, pay any attention at all to, to biotech and medtech, you know, realize that. So my hat's off to the Genentechs of the world, which is now the most admired country in the, uh, admired uh, company in the country. Uh, and that's 35 years old, but let's just talk about one recently. I got a, a chance to interview my brother up here, and it was a real honor to do that. Um, and he was involved in a company called, as an investor, in something called Genomic Health. And I, this was last spring, and for those of you who are, were with us, we even mentioned it, that our mom had died from um, uh, breast cancer. And genomic health has this way, it's one of the uh, bellwethers of this notion, part of medicine called personalized medicine, which is targeting different therapies and, and uh, diagnostic tools to certain people based on your characteristics. So maybe you don't need, a woman who has breast cancer maybe won't need to, uh, um, should only get um, chemotherapy if it's absolutely necessary, that sort of thing, because chemotherapy is a very dangerous kind of thing. So that's a, that's a layman's interpretation of that, but the company's called Genomic Health, and guess what? The CEO is coming. About two or three weeks from now, the CEO, uh, Kim, will be here, and it's just a fascinating company. Man, have they navigated context over the last few years. They're public now. They're, go look them up on Google. You're going to be... Uh, uh, blown away by the success they've had when everybody said, don't start companies, don't, don't be doing companies during this terrible recession. And as a matter of fact, it's been proven over and over again, great companies always get started in recessions. If you go back and sort of plot recessions versus the founding dates of, of some of the enduring companies. All right, I'm going to hit the accelerator here a little bit. I've got oh, so much stuff I want to tell you, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll just try to pick and choose. This one has to do with marketing. It turns out that in startups, and all the ones I've been associated with, either when we were starting up Symantec uh, or uh, Slate or when I've been a board member at ones, you know, every, everybody's really obsessed with getting the product done, as they should be, or the service. I mean, you know, we're turning the technology into something useful. No, no question. That's got to happen. R&D is very, very important. It's a necessary condition. It's not sufficient. Everybody's uh, obsessed about sales because we've got to generate some sort of revenue right away. And you, you would want them to be that way. I mean, sales is really important. What gets lost out of the, uh, the picture a lot of times is um, this notion of marketing, which you'll learn about. If you went to business school, there'll be marketing classes. We have a great marketing class here in the engineering school taught by an, a whole team of people, uh, Tom and Donna and so on. And, but marketing in, in the real world is just sort of seen as kind of, uh, you know, the back seat, you know, uh, the ugly duckling, and that could be as far from the truth as what really, really happens when, in successful companies. Uh, they do an amazing job of figuring out how we're going to compete, who we're going to sell stuff to exactly, who's, who's really are we serving, and how we're going to partner in order to do that. And so um, a friend of all of ours in this room, because he's a Stanford grad, he's an English major, I hope you've seen him speak in this room before, Jeff Moore, popularized this model which most of us who teach this stuff, you know, absolutely love. How many of you have seen this model called crossing the chasm before? Have you seen it? Oh, great. Not many of you have. Well, then I urge you to, to buy one of these books. It's cheap. It's, it's, it's not, again, it's not a textbook. It's one of these. You can read on the airplane. And it is, it's, it more or less is the Bible. Still, after 15 years of entrepreneurial marketing, 
And it goes along this notion that everything that's radical, every innovation that's really a brave new world, uh, that really changes the game, um, goes through an, a, a, a set of time before it gets adopted. Everything. I mean, even digital music players. If I ask you now, how many of you have an iPod or a digital music player? You say, sure, I got one. If I'd asked you that question two years ago, it wouldn't be the same. If I asked you, two, you know, four years ago, it wouldn't have been uh, many at all. Because only at, you know, four years ago uh, did people in this area, the early adopters, have that. Well, it turns out everybody thought that technologies just got adopted really smoothly. But they don't. There's this chasm. You see that break between sort of the early market and, the, and sort of the mainstream market? Where, where wealth and success really is, there's a break there. So this fellow developed a method and a, and a way of talking about how to get across there with all kinds of metaphors of, of uh, bowling alley, tornado, and Main Street. I guess my point is this, is what I've noticed over and over is that partnering is one of the keys to that. And I had a chance in the 90s to see uh, a bunch of people, a bunch of entrepreneurs, range a partnership uh, with another company that people said you could not partner with that just blew me away. And I got to watch it really closely because I was a board member from the, for the whole get-go. The company was in Seattle. It was called Visio, V-I-S-I-O. It's now a product line at Microsoft, but just suspend that for a minute. It was, it was a graphic software package, uh, and it was a separate company for 10 years all the way through uh, the 90s. And uh, it ran on, only on Windows, and it was a, a drawing package and flow charting and org charts and things like that. Well, they did an, an amazing job of getting Microsoft, who back in, if you don't think Microsoft is well-liked now, you should have seen them in the 90s. That was when they were being sued by the government, you know, and all this kind of stuff for being monopolistic. So nobody wanted to work with Microsoft because, you know, those ruthless uh, folks, they'll, they'll never be able to just never create a situation where it's one plus one equals three. Well, it was amazing to watch this, these folks from Visio pull that off and, and do great sales uh, promotions together, do great marketing uh, campaigns together. Now, it turned out after 10 years of, of, uh, of dating, they actually got married. The relationship went to another level, and Microsoft bought them. Uh, but even during the period, it wasn't about, hey, let's do this so we get bought by Microsoft someday. It was, look, partnerships are key. The way to get across that chasm we need to partner with Microsoft. We're going to make it work. All right, so let's do three uh, now having to do with uh, financial stuff. This is the first time, and, I, and since uh, I got the bully pulpit here, <laughs> I just used the word business plan. Here I am talking about entrepreneurship, and I haven't used the word business plan yet. That's pretty wild because most people equate the two. I know as educators, we, we also talk about this, that you know, some, uh, almost every university has a business plan competition. We have a great one, too, that the, the, actually several, as you know, that basis runs. Uh, but they think that that's the extent of entrepreneurship education. Or out in the real world, people think this is all that's necessary for an entrepreneur to do, to raise money from somewhere else. Okay? So what I want you to do is turn to a friend, somebody sitting right next to you, and come up with another reason to do a business plan other than raising money. Just turn to any friend and say, what's another reason to raise money? Just pick one. It's class time. Okay. So, 
All right, other than raising money uh, from a, a, an investor, which is what most people think of, uh, how many of you said something to do with, okay, it's a way to attract investors, but it also might be a way to attract customers or employees or partners? How many of you said that one? Might be a way, okay. How many of you said it might be a good way to just, uh, you know, channel your thinking about the business itself and then track your progress? Okay, great. And which ones did I miss? Anybody have any others? Like to share? Yeah. Identify future challenges, which is sort of related to thinking, you know, thinking through the business. Yes. Perhaps identify new opportunities. Identify new uh, opportunities. Great. So um, I'm glad that you, you immediately identified that there's more to it than that. And um, I also wanted to show a, my favorite fa framework, a pri frankly, of all entrepreneurship. It comes from a, uh, a paper. Uh, written, I'm, I'm actually shocked, I just looked at it, written in 1997 from a professor at Harvard called How to Write a Great Business Plan. And um, I love the tagline. It says, which information belongs and which doesn't may surprise you. If it's very, very short. You can order it from uh, Harvard Business School or just borrow it from somebody who's taken one of our classes because certainly in my class they've, it's assigned along with the, with the textbook and Randy's book. And uh, this is just a pictorial diagram of it and without a lot of... Uh, uh, time here, it just shows that, you know, some people might think that the business plan, the only thing that's important about that is getting a deal done. It's just getting a, something, um, some money out of some investor to make something happen. And in fact, it's, it's a set of questions that have to be answered so the whole, I don't know, ecosystem of a venture um, has to be in alignment. The opportunity has to be in alignment with resources and people and the context we talked about, you know, the economic environment and so forth, regulatory environment, with the deal. When they're in alignment, the deals will get done. It has nothing to do whether the business plan is, you know, super polished or, su uh, or spiffy or anything like that. So let's go to the next one having to do with finance. So business plans are much more than just finance. That wasn't point, that point. This is this one where it, there's that famous saying, cash flow is more important than your Mother, yeah, mother. Or you can put in something else, if, uh, you know, depending on your relationship your mom. <laughs> I'll put it, my cat would go there. Cash flow is more important than, uh, than my cat. And, um, and this is, uh, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a sound bite from entrepreneurship that happens to, to have some legs in it. You know, and I wrote some note, down some notes about this. I, because I, I, I really, this is, this is uh, so important, I wanted to not forget something. Look, when you're managing a small company, or when somebody's managing, you know, when you know somebody's managing a small company, that's just really different than managing a big company in a lot of ways. But one thing is, in a lot of ways, is you, one thing is you can't. You have to be concerned about cash. If you're running a big company, yes, your performance and getting it done, all that, yes, it makes sense. But um, it, the company, the big company, is not going to run out of cash because of you. But if you're running a small company, you just may run out of cash. And since it is the heart pressure, you know, to coin a medical phrase or, or, or you know, the, the heartbeat, it's the blood pressure of the company, when you're out, it is game over. And that is just such a different feeling than working in a big company. And that's why sometimes big company executives who have tried to go and run and be part of a, uh, the team in a young company have a difficult transition, uh, not realizing that. You know, what they spend it on, what entrepreneurs spend it on is really telling. And I hope that I, uh, I hope I convince you that during the rest of the uh, winter and spring, 
I'm not doing any favors for the future speakers here, but um, I hope I convince you to ask questions like, okay, what are you spending your money on right now? Because, you know, cash is your, your, uh, your blood pressure. It's so precious. It's one thing you can't run out of. It's the only financial parameter that matters in a startup. What are you spending it on? Because that'll be interesting to watch just how uh, crisp the answer is. Oh, we're spending it on reducing the risk in our technology. Or we're spending the, uh, it on the reducing the risk of uh, our marketplace, you know, or getting to know our customers. Oh, or we are spending on the risk of the fact that we don't really have a full team right now. I mean, our team is only half-baked, meaning you know, in terms of, uh, of the kind of talent we have, and we need to change that. You know, I think of people who did this. I mean, Palm did this really well. We've had Jeff Hawkins here, and, uh, and who, along with Donna Dubinsky, really created the whole field of Palm computing by, by creating the first per, per, uh, personal digital assistant. And I happened to know a little bit about all that and knew Jeff at the time and Donna because we were uh, in that same sort of space. I had started a company after... Um, Slate, I mean, after Symantec, called Slate, and we didn't do so well. And, and we just spent too much money. I didn't follow my own advice. And I, I was just amazed how Donna and Jeff, and, you, and Jeff, you've seen him up here. This guy's just amazing, uh, smart. One thing he, was, he and Donna were really good smart is they, they cocooned is the word they used to use. And really, really, really careful and were super frugal as that market, it just didn't, it was, we had a chasm problem. You know, the, the whole notion of writing on uh, you know, small devices, handheld devices, and writing with a pen and all that. That just took a long time to get going. Battery life and, and handwritten, handwriting recognition took a long time. But they were able to cocoon and do that. When I was in London recently, I was really impressed by the startups there. I, I hung out with a startup that is uh, located in Israel as well as London. And... Um, they're in the space that might be tangentially related to eBay. I mean, that's, that's not necessarily the important thing. But it's a startup, 20 people. They're spending, and I'll put it in dollars instead of pounds, but they're spending about less than $100,000 a month of, for these 20 people who are somewhere between London and Israel. London's, have you been to London lately? It's expensive. You know, it is really expensive. It's, it's like living in New York. So it's, you can't just say, hey, London's a cheap place to live because that ain't true. I have firsthand knowledge. Uh, maybe Israel's a little uh, less expensive, say, than Silicon Valley. But what I liked about that is 20 people doing 100,000. That's unheard of here in Silicon Valley. 20 people, oh, 10,000 per head, per, and this per, for each month. For one month would be 200,000. And that's a probably a well, that would be seen as a well-run company, 200,000. And probably not, not so well-run, you know, a little sloppy maybe in their spending, would be 250 to 300,000 dollars. This is London we're talking about. This is not, you know, India or China or anything like that. So, so there are people who really get this, and they really drive it home. Um, let's do one more on finance. So I couldn't do one without talking a little bit about this, you know, where does money come from? I mean, it, I mean remember we were talking about the bloodhound or the retriever, the retriever, the retriever, the first dog to get the company started. And they got a trade stock for ideas, capital, and talent. Well, let's talk about how they trade stock for capital. Um, these are the sort of different sources of capital. And it's a lot of fun in our classes to, to dive down and talk about the pros and cons of each one of these. And you'll hear that a lot in here as well. I mean, for example, there's angel investors, which is just wealthy uh, investors, um, you know, individuals. Uh, there's corporate venture capital, which is something like Intel. There's the traditional VC, like the Sequoias and Excels and Kleiner Perkins. 
And uh, then there's bootstrapping, which is either uh, personal funds or convincing a customer uh, to pay you some funds up front. So, and then there's other, which, what do you think other is for a moment? What's the public, right? So if a company ever gets really, really successful, they can go public, and that becomes an investor, right, and, you know, for, for growing the company. And what got really weird five years ago is the public was really interested in getting involved super early on where there was tons of risk until everything kind of unraveled. So, you know, there's pros and cons to each one. We could sit here for another half an hour and talk about that, and it's really a lot of fun to, to do that. Uh, say traditional VC, what's the pro? Well, they got lots of money to deploy, you know, and for people who are really going to go for something and really change the world. They got lots of money to deploy, and they got lots of expertise to bring to the table and help, and you'll hear that over and over here and again. But what's the downside of VC? It's really expensive money. I mean, in terms of the dilution and the ownership that's going to have to be given up uh, in order to have them involved. And we can do that across the board. So the other thing, do I have this? No, I don't. Um, the other one I want to mention here is um, over and over we see the following. And it's really fun to do this when we're teaching this material. It is a, it is a process. All this stuff is a process and a, and a set of mechanisms. This notion of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs getting together and cutting a deal like it's some sort of television show or something like that uh, is really way offline. You know, getting the best price like it's a used car. What really goes on, and over and over again, it's not the best price that gets the deal done. It, it, there's been academic research on this, and there's been you know, just layman research done on this that shows that rarely does an entrepreneur uh, take the best price from a venture capitalist, meaning you know, they get the most money for the least amount of ownership given up. It's all the other stuff, all the other terms and conditions that come into play about how they're going to help each other be successful. Have you seen this? Yeah. I got one laugh. I'm, I've, got, I've got four more to go. All right. You've, have you seen this picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, cool. So it is, who is it? It's Microsoft. So even Microsoft was a team. So this, where, where, where is, uh, all right, since we're at Stanford, and many of you maybe go to take classes in the Paul Allen building, the double E building, which one's Paul? Got to know that, I mean, there's Terman up there. So which one's Paul in the, for the Paul Allen building? Unabomber. All right, got that one then. All right, and who's this? Yes, exactly. And so this is a long time ago. So even Microsoft, who everybody thinks Bill Gates, Bill Gates, Bill Gates, Bill Gates, was a team. And I know Bill, if he was here, <clears throat> would absolutely um, echo that. It's just a myth to say that Steve Jobs started Apple. It's just, and he'd be pissed off if, he, he, if we were saying that in here as well. I went to see him honored at a Harvard uh, event, and he refused to go on stage. He was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. He brought his entire management team from Apple on the stage, all 14 of them, and was, made, made them interview all 14, not him, because he said, oh, come on. I, it's not me. Apple's not me, whether it's the Mac or whether it's the iPod and so forth. So what's really cool, and this is, I'm, I don't know, we try to shy away from metaphors, whether they're sports metaphors or even worse, uh, war metaphors, and describing entrepreneurship. But this is one you just, I just couldn't resist. It's a team sport. I had that opportunity to see this firsthand when I was at Symantec. Uh, Symantec makes the antivirus products. It didn't to begin with. I mean, just think, maybe you've sometimes wondered when you've used Norton to go, where the hell did they get the name Symantec? Well, because we raised money 
as an artificial intelligence company, like Semantics, get it, Semantic, uh, because we were going to do front-end natural language English uh, uh, commands to databases. There was, some there was some technology here from Stanford. And you know, we built a product for personal computers. It did okay, but it was never going to be a public company. It certainly never was going to be a very big company. And I had the opportunity as a, one of the general managers and executive vice presidents to say, go off and we got to find some other pastures you know, uh, to graze in. And I got lucky in hiring some uh, good people. The rest of the team filled in. We had great operations people and salespeople. We got in the antivirus business in the 80s. And now it's like a fourth largest software company in the world. I mean, combined with Veritas, uh, having to do with security. It was, it was all about the team being adaptive. And, it, and otherwise, we would not have been a very, uh, we would have been an also-ran software company. So the flip side, I, this, this, this is a two-for-one today on number eight. <laughs> this eight. I feel like a... Uh, 802.11 or something, 8.1 8 and 8.2. Um, the 8.2 is how can reward systems and company culture inspire innovation? And I'll just jump to the, uh, the, the most important point out here because of time. There's a professor that we get to teach with who has a great way of putting this. And they, they say uh, innovation, which is really the siren song of everybody, whether they're in entrepreneurial startups or big companies, they say, Innovation is, and this is good because I'm an old engineer, uh, a lover of engineering stuff, is a function of creativity and teamwork. Innovation is a function of creativity and teamwork. So, you know, all this stuff is just my way of looking at the world to try to categorize all this and keep this stuff straight as I read, you know, all these wonderful things about entrepreneurship. A function of creativity and, and, uh, and uh, and teamwork. So let's do this again. Creativity is really, really important. Oh my God, Tina Selig is the best creative uh, professor I've ever seen. She teaches a class in the spring. We're going to get you up here in the spring and talk about uh, her class. It's amazing. But I bet you would, um, it would be nice to argue, but it's, it's only a necessary condition uh, to, to be innovative. It's not sufficient, once again, because it must have teamwork. And I have really enjoyed, after coming back to be an educator, but certainly when I was in Silicon Valley at Symantec and Slater, now I'm on boards of directors of companies, is it comes down to that, how do you take a group of people and turn them into a really kick-ass team? I mean, Stanford's women's basketball, Stanford men's basketball, here's the other you know, sports analogy, the last one I promise, has just proven that all over, uh, you know, over and over again since I've been here. I mean, they're just amazing. And... and you know, being a Cal grad, it's been painful because, I mean, Cal hasn't won a game here, you know, since I was young. Um, so, you know, and it's always been because of the team concept. Stanford basketball, men and women have never had necessarily superstars compared to the, the rest of the country. It's been of that because they, they have they're very creative and they combine that with teamwork and then, therefore, the innovative. And the same thing goes for high tech. All right, two more. Um, how many of you have ever sold anything, whether it's in a restaurant, retail, you know, in high school, anything, just sold anything, anything whatsoever? That is so good to see that most of you have because you probably appreciate what a noble profession that is. You know, I said teaching was a noble profession, but selling is, as well, and a lot of people don't get that. I mean, it's just recently that business schools, including our own great one across the campus, is now beginning to teach sales. I mean, courses in sales. They had courses in marketing, they had courses in you know, accounting, so forth, finance, but now there's some great courses being built in sales. 
because it is fundamentally important to entrepreneurship as well. I mean, I said marketing was as well, but this is it. And it's, this is really about skills as well as marketing is about strategy. The skills here are things like negotiation. And that's why we've offered a, a negotiation class that's super popular by uh, Stan Christensen now twice a year, off, open to all undergrads and grads. I hope so. I hope I said that right. Um, uh, or um, other uh, sales skills are things like influence and persuasion. It's really applied psychology. I sure wish I'd taken more psychology classes when I was at Cal. I was undergraduate, you know, and... Uh, and engineering, and I just avoided anything to do with sociology and psychology. But ever since I started teaching entrepreneurship, I've had to like retool myself to learn that stuff. So it's a uh, very, very fundamental. Because you know what? If 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 you're going to do something great to turn an idea into an enterprise that changes the world, whether it's in business, government, education, you're going to have to sell. You're going to have to convince some customers or stakeholders to buy your story, and that can only happen. Uh, if you look for these you know, win-win situations, all those sound bites, one plus one equals three type situations, whether it's partnerships like we talked about earlier between Vizio and Microsoft, or whether it's um, a, you know, just directly selling a product or service. And so uh, this is a list of characteristics of entrepreneurs by uh, a person who wrote a paper called A Taste for the Faint-Hearted. It's in the Harvard Business Review. And uh, he studied entrepreneurs all over the globe, which I told you I have a great interest in. And he studied them all, and he came up with five attributes. And maybe you've heard some of the other ones before. You know, they're audacious and courageous and patient. And certainly I talked about adaptive. But I love that the one that he also found that was common to all cultures, low-tech, high-tech, so forth, closer. And that's just another way of saying being good at sales. So the last one is the mother load of, of questions or things that I like to think about. And that is the relationship of entrepreneurship to ethics. You know, I said earlier that it's been a, a real joy and, and something that um, I feel so blessed. I've had a chance to hang out here at this place, this time, over the last 10 years. And saw the greed, the abject greed, just, just grip the place in the last part of the 90s. And then see fear grip the place, you know, starting with 2000, 2001. Uh, and now see us come back to sort of steady state. What role did ethics play uh, in entrepreneurship during this period, and what shall that happen? It's been a, a big interest of mine. Um, and I want to get this right. You know, um, it got ugly. <laughs> I didn't need to look down there. It got very, very ugly. We had things like Enron happen, and it really did put a damper on the whole idea. So, okay, all entrepreneurs, promoters, are they all bad? No. Bad behavior is just bad, period. You know, and, and, and first of all, statistically, it was a small group of people. But bad behavior is bad, period, at any time during periods of expansion, recession, and it will be found out. It always is found out. I mean, thanks to, I mean, I'm not an ethics professor. I'm just, I'm just know this in terms of studying entrepreneurial uh, situations in high tech. It usually is found out. It almost always is found out because of transparency. You know, failure is okay. And this is where I love it when we get some people who, um, are trying to share a little bit of wisdom in here, and I don't like to. I'm not. I'm not going to get up on the stage and you know and say you know be ethical and 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 so forth. All I'm going to say is failure is okay. I've had plenty of it in my life, and thank God my moral compass, for one reason or another, um, you know, God rest my mom and dad or something, was pointing in the right direction. So I didn't take the wrong turn. I said, okay, failure is okay. Um, 
I know that's not the case in every culture in the world, but at least here it is. And character just matters. At the end of the day, character matters. And reputations matter. Um, and certainly, Semantic was a huge hit. Slate was a terrible failure. And it was psychologically hard to get over with after having been such a, a success at Symantec. But it certainly taught me that by keeping my moral compass pointing in the right direction, things were going to be okay. So who would you rather be? You know, Enron, and there's their stock price in the 2001 going way up, all built on stilts, and it came crashing down and is now, you know, the legend uh, and, and lore. Uh, or would you be folks that we have gotten to know around here and that we uh, can be very, very proud of, whether it's Genentech, which came out of Stanford and UCSF technology and is the most admired company in the uh, United States, if not the world, uh, or how about recently, Google and Yahoo? Have they done, I don't know what their market caps are combined, but it's got to dwarf you know, most of uh, the other tech companies. And so financially, they've done great, but it was never about financial gain for them. Anytime you see uh, Jerry and David speak from Yahoo or Sergey and Larry speak from Google, it never was about financial gain. It was about changing the world, making meaning, all those kinds of things you hear people in here. I, I tell you, it's, it's absolutely the case. So with that in mind, uh, I sufficiently did, went long enough to where you can't ask me any questions. <laughs> we will do a few. But um, I told you, I, I, uh, and I thank you for listening so carefully, but send me an email um, if you have any thoughts on what I had to say. Uh, there is a version of this talk that's sort of in paragraph form that I keep up to date on the website. And, and, uh, and also, that's only two pages long. If you're interested in a 400-page version, uh, it's in there. But also, I urge you to go to the Ed Corner. So let's do a couple of questions. We got till 5.30. We have five more minutes. Just do the uh, Captain Kirk thing, the Star Trek thing, where you grab this. And for those of you who are new, you, you get to be on uh, television. If you ask a question, just grab that and speak in. Terrific. How about over here? Oh, the company in London is doing so well. It's called Swift Fine, and they register valuables. And uh, so that if you say you're up on a uh, offline or online auction, you'll know whether something was stolen or not. Yeah. Yes, right here. Yeah, what does shopping mean? Well, like to get investment or... To I know. I would, uh, I would do it right early on. You know, it's, the, uh, the thing, you know, I have a story, this, a quick story. I got to, uh, um, to be part of a think tank in the 80s that was funded by Paul Allen. And it was over here on Sand Hill Road. And we uh, had lots of wonderful technologies. Oh, my God. We had Java long before Sun was thinking about it. We had some others. And one of the, uh, this is right at the dawn of the Internet. One of the sad things was that, there, uh, and a number of professors were involved here. I just happened to be one of the business professors, mostly technical professors from CS and EE. And one of the problems was uh, there was a culture there not to show things, you know, not to go out in the valley. Because I remember one time I said, let's go show this product over to uh, Andreessen and Jim Clark, who were at Netscape, just getting underway. It was essentially like a baby Java. Nah. Now, wait, 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 wait. So I, it, most people err on waiting too long I mean, um, and because they're paranoid that somebody's going to steal it and so forth. It just that rarely happens. It's the other way around, missing the window of opportunity, you know, coin a phrase, but, or, you know, soundbite. Okay? So I'd say 
you know, in this kind of form. We can talk about it offline, but earlier is better. How about back in the right? What, 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 slate? Oh, God, yeah. So, so I said Symantec was a big success. I, I left right after the public offering because I wanted to you know, crank something up again. I got together with the fellow who had invented uh, VisiCalc, the very first spreadsheet. And so um, it was just amazing uh, to, get, uh, to get a company going with him. But you know, what I learned, uh, other than uh, was a number of things, and, and I, I mentioned one already. We just spent too much money too fast. I mean, our burn rate got up to be about $700,000 when we weren't really clear when the market was going to take. We were a software company. We weren't building hardware. There's no way a software company should have been up spending $700,000 a month. I was just, you know, championing this one in Israel and the U.K. doing 100. And, you know, I'd I love to ask the founders of Palm, did they ever get anywhere near $700,000? So there was the cash flow, you know, stuff that, you know, shame on me once again. Um, and the... the um, you know, there's some, a lot of personal issues I learned um, that, uh, you know, I'd love, I, I've tried not to repeat. I, I haven't run into companies since then, but I've tried to, to um, share with the CEOs of the companies I'm on the board of. Just, just lots, you know, it's, it's some of the stuff you just learn from uh, experience about how to handle certain situations, how to keep a non-performer on or maybe not keep them on or rehabilitate them, all that kind of stuff. How about one more? Well, all right. No more? Let me, let me invite you once again, uh, and frankly, any, any undergraduate, I, I don't care, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, any co-term, because when you're undergraduates, believe me, you grow up, <laughs> and you'll be a junior and senior before you know it. So this thing called the Mayfield Fellows Program, which is a work-study program of many courses with us, then a summer job and an intern, is 10 years old. It's a, uh, we are such a pleasure to be involved with it. So... Anybody who's going to eventually be a junior, senior, or co-term, I urge you to come upstairs and join us on the fourth floor, just, just four floors up, and uh, meet some of the alumni of the program and talk to us about it uh, this evening. Okay? Otherwise, let me turn it back over to you. On behalf of BASIS and STVP, we'd like to welcome or thank uh, Professor Tom Byers for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for putting that with me. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Tina. It's a real joy. Please come back next week when I'll be introducing our speaker. <laughs>